This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Good Morning Liberty. All right, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Our co-host, Charlie, is not sitting across from me right now, but do not worry. I'm currently joined by James Tronowski, who is a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I was just trying to figure out how long it had been since we talked. I know it's been a few months. A lot has happened uh, since then. We've got a few things uh, to talk about today. The first I think we can talk about is the Section 702 expiring and uh, your thoughts on that. And if you wouldn't mind just giving the listeners a brief synopsis on Section 702. Absolutely. So Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is a power that's granted to the intelligence community so that they can conduct surveillance and collect information on non-U.S. persons. That was the intention of the program when it was signed into law back in 2007-2008. And and the reality is, is that unfortunately, given the way that communications are stored uh, with this technology, it's not just locally tied to uh, you know, the one spot in the world, it's kind of all over the world, right? So even though they're collecting data on, on non-US persons per this authority, they also do collect information on Americans in the process of that. And they search that data as well, which in our opinion would be a violation of Americans' Fourth Amendment rights because they've done nothing wrong to otherwise mm-hmm. go and draw suspicion uh, from the government. So this authority has been used and abused repeatedly over many years. We've seen numerous Fisk court opinions come out going and and highlighting some of those nasty abuses that the intelligence community has done, particularly the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, and, and really what, what it's resulted in is a call from many across the ideological spectrum for uh, a lot of necessary reforms to be made to this program before it gets reauthorized at the end of the year, because if it does not, the program itself will expire. And that's something that the administration and certainly the intelligence community do not want to see happen. And so for your information to be collected on this, uh, you just simply have to talk to someone who's from outside of the country and then you're they're free to go, free to do what they please? Yeah, in theory, all, all you have to do is just, you know, again, your data could have been, you could have been communicating with somebody and it could have been in a completely innocuous fashion. And again, if you're, if you were a non-US person um, that was getting targeted, that could have scooped up Americans' communications with you in the process. And that's how you end up getting, uh, you know, flagged in that database, um, ultimately when it gets searched. And, and you know, the, the FBI, even at their most uh, reserved number, I think, conducted well over 200,000 searches of the FISA, uh, the Section 702 database um, on Americans' information. So it's a lot of searches that have gone down um, that I would argue are violating Americans' Fourth Amendment rights. And again, what they do, they they largely probably did nothing wrong outside of having communication with somebody and it got caught up. So it's pretty alarming. 
And what is the, uh, what's Congress think about this? Are they on the side of changing 702? Do most of them want to keep the status quo here? What's it looking like? Yeah, I would say that this is a very unique inflection point in Congress because this is where we've actually seen a strange bedfellows kind of emerge. We've had progressives and actually Freedom Caucus conservatives be strong allies with one another on this issue, calling for strong reforms to the program. Um, Obviously, you will always have some members of Congress that are a little bit more deferential to the intelligence community, um, and they might not want to see those kinds of drastic reforms. But I think that the nice thing is, on average, uh, the the administration and and members of Congress realize that this program needs to have some reforms in it before it gets reauthorized. They don't just want a clean reauthorization, which is what the administration and the intelligence community have been pushing for for a very long time throughout this entire year. Um, and even right now, what they're looking for in terms of reform is actually pretty milk toast stuff, like codifying uh, internal changes that they've made. Uh, to the programs in light of the different abuses that have been discovered. So um, these members of Congress that want to see reforms are looking for something a little bit more significant. Um, and hopefully we'll see between now and the end of the year if we're able to go and get any movement on getting any of those kinds of reforms included in any reauthorization. So I happen to currently be wearing a shirt that says power corrupts on it. And so I was going to ask your personal thoughts on it. Isn't any kind of power like this uh going to be likely to be abused in the future? Can this really be reformed and us still be our Fourth Amendment rights still be protected? Yeah, I, I think that there's always a little bit of a, a fair play in, in suggesting that, you know, there's always going to be some kind of issue there. But I think the reality is, is that when you're looking at this particular power and what's going on there, it's a question of as compared to what. Um, if this authority expires, that I don't think that the intelligence community is going to all of a sudden, you know, not do this surveillance in the way that they're doing it right now. It's just going to get reshuffled into another program under existing, uh, you know, powers that might be looked at underneath what would be called Executive Order 12333, um, which is what a lot of this surveillance was originally conducted under. So I think that, you know, again, I, I understand why we're worried about that power and corruption, but really it's sunshine's the best disinfectant that we can hope for here and i think that that's why it's important to focus on that and not just let the program expire because again i don't trust the government enough to let it expire and just assume that they're going to you know play nice about it i mean this is the same intelligence community that got busted uh you know inappropriately using this authority to go and spy on january 6th protesters to spy on black lives matter protesters to go and spy on a sitting uh congressman um, to go and, and target political donors. I mean, the, the abuses are rampant and repeated. So um, that's why I think that we don't want to necessarily let it expire because then Congress will lose any kind of oversight and accountability function that it could exercise over these intelligence communities. See, that's why we have you on, because that's the way that I should be thinking about it, is that the, this does give them them the power to have oversight over the intelligence community. And so that that's a better way to be thinking about it, for sure. Um, speaking of uh, some of this corruption, maybe, well, let's get on to misinformation a little bit. Now, we had this thing, a brief moment, about a month, I believe, we had something called the Disinformation Governance Board the DGB, that's actually what they went with. I can't believe it. Uh, but yeah, we had the, the DGB. You um, you were telling me beforehand about this FOIA request and some of the information that you got. Tell us what went down with that. 
Yeah. So Americans for Prosperity Foundation issued a FOIA request to the uh, to the Department of uh, Homeland Security a while back, seeking to get some information around like the genesis and origins of the disinformation governance board. Naturally, uh, the government is not so great at responding to these FOIA requests all the time. So we did sue them um, to go and get access to those FOIA requests. And we've been getting document just this morning. Fox News had covered the latest document production that we had gotten from the Department of Homeland Security that was going over this disinformation governance board, um, where they had memos suggesting that the Department of Homeland Security had the authority to uh, engage in policing online speech in this space. But wait for it. The government went and provided those memos, but then redacted everything inside those memos. <laughs> um, so we don't, while they're, you know, putting forward this very novel legal theory, if you will, they're not willing to go and tell us like why they're not showing their homework, if you will. Um, you know, their, their excuses that this would somehow compromise investigations or something of that is one of the exclusions underneath FOIA that they can use. But at the end of the day, what I would argue is that they're trying to go and hide from being transparent to the American people about why they think they have the authority to go and police speech online. So it was a it was a very important thing that we had come out there. I'm glad we were able to go and get this information out there um, because it goes to show just how, uh, you know, how crazy the the administrative state can be at times where these executive bodies think that they have unlimited power at their disposal and broad sweeping authorities that they might not otherwise have. There is no legal basis. And that's one of the nice things that the Fox News piece covered is that, you know, you had former DHS officials being like, there's no legal authority for this. I don't know what they're on. Right. <laughs> so I think that, you know, again, this is just really alarming. The government should not be in the business of trying to dictate what is true or what is good uh, to be present on the Internet. Um, I think two things can be true. You can be worried about misinformation and all that jazz and recognize that the government it might not be the best vehicle for dealing with that particular problem here uh, because, thankfully, of our First Amendment. So uh, very excited about that. Glad we got to go and have that out there. And, you know, obviously we'll continue to do work in this space and see where we can get more transparency and more accountability from this administration that's seemingly trying to avoid it at every turn. Do you think the redaction of these memos might also have something to do with the uh, legal matters uh, involving their policing of online speech, like the case coming out of, is it Missouri, yeah. I believe? Do you think it has something to do with that? No, not necessarily. I don't. I don't know if it's going to be tied to anything like that because that that would probably be produced under under any kind of discovery if they if they were looking for that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's just a thematic thing where the government, you know, wants to avoid having to answer for some of the things when it gets caught with its hands in the cookie jar. And in this case, the cookie jar is violating Americans' constitutional <laughs> rights. Um, so I think that they want to avoid the scrutiny that comes from that because they already got a, a ton of scrutiny when this program was originally announced. And, and uh, you know, you had Nina Jankowitz of all people going and leading those efforts. So I think that at the end of the day, this is just a, a typical thing of the government trying to avoid any kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, being held to account by, by organizations like ours that want to better understand exactly what in God's name made them think that this was a good idea. Now, what do you think... Uh, I I hadn't thought about mentioning this, but that court case, I believe, coming out of the Fifth Circuit, uh, we haven't talked since all of this happened. So what what's your coverage on that, Ben? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's an interesting case. Obviously, back on July 4th, the district court judge had a very sweeping injunction. Um, there were some, I think, well, you could understand and appreciate his concern for the government and its interaction with these social media platforms. Uh, I think a lot of the original consensus there was that there was a lot of flaws in that legal opinion. And unsurprisingly, the Fifth Circuit uh, modified that injunction and 
and uh, kind of constrained it a little bit to focus on a more narrowly tailored set of, of individuals that they thought actually probably likely violated the First Amendment, which in this instance was the FBI, the White House, the Center for Disease and Control Prevention, uh, and the Surgeon General. Um, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, they, they found that those institutions likely violated the First Amendment with some of their communications with these platforms. Um, that's gotten an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court right now by the U.S. Solicitor General. And, you know, I think right now the, the most interesting thing about this case is that it's forcing an interesting conversation, I think, for not just politicians, but for Americans more broadly about figuring out what is that line of permissible communication between the government and a private actor. Because it's one thing if the government's coming to a company and saying, hey, um, you know, you, you have child sexual abuse material, which is illegal stuff, right? And we want to go and obviously not have that on the internet. So let's work to go and tackle that. That's one kind of thing as opposed to going and reaching out to these companies and saying, why haven't you taken action? Uh, why aren't you doing more on COVID misinformation? What is the data on this? Tell us now. Or, you know, you're a member of Congress issuing veiled threats about modifying or removing Section 230 protections for these companies uh, if they do not go and do a preferred course of action. Um, so, again, I think that this is a really fascinating case. We'll see what the Supreme Court's going to say. Um, we could have an answer as early as today or early next week. Um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And, and as soon as we hear from that, I'll be sure to go and let everybody know my thoughts, but it, it really is an important case in its own right, especially when you couple it with the net choice cases that are against Texas and Florida on their social media bills. This could be a very big year for SCOTUS in the realm of free speech. So the one thing uh, I mentioned I wanted to uh, to bring up when we were talking about this, the Biden administration, I believe is launching a, an, an effort to counter misinformation online. Uh, I don't remember what they're calling it, but it's probably something ridiculous. I'm not sure. Uh, but um, I wonder if there's always an implicit threat from the government. I know that they're just going to try to counter what they call misinformation. But since they are the government, is is there not an implicit threat all the time that if this is what they call misinformation as a company that you want to be in line with what they are saying over here through the the fear that they could bring some kind of actions against you? Yeah, I, I think that that's always a concern of mine, at least, is that, um, you know, the government is the one that has the unilateral authority of force. Um, so even if they I mean, and even when the uh, Biden administration was asked about this, they had put out some kind of statement um, that was talking about how they think that these social media platforms have a responsibility to do X, Y and Z. Um, but it was it was legally crafted in such a way where they're like, but they as a, they're the ones who have to make the decision, which would basically cover them from any kind of accusations that they're facing uh, currently underneath Missouri v. Biden, which surrounds a legal theory called the state action doctrine. So I think that, um, you know, there's always an implicit uh, problem, in my view, of, of the government going and, uh, you know, using the, the bully pulpit uh, in some ways um, about this kind of stuff that has a nexus with speech. But you don't even have to just take it in the social media context. We've seen it in other areas of the economy as well, where, um, you know, let's say on the antitrust front, Lena Khan's been very aggressive on that. And that's had a chilling effect on, on companies wanting to do merger and acquisition activity. It's gone and, uh, you know, kind of grounded down to a halt and deals being abandoned. Um, it's forced, you know, companies to spend millions of dollars on, uh, you know, uh, lawsuits in, in this case, um, in some cases, to do things that they would otherwise be normally perfectly good with doing. So, again, I think that the government, given its unilateral authority on force, um, definitely how always that that threat is is there. Um, but you know, some, some are better about respecting the, the constraints on power that they have than others. And, 
you know, unfortunately, right now we're in an era where everybody is seemingly okay with abusing their their authority and having scope creep and trying to do new things uh, that they probably shouldn't be doing. <laughs> well, uh, you brought up the FTC, so if we could spend a few minutes on this uh, with what's going on with the FTC and Amazon. Now, I'll admit what I heard about them doing does sound very shady and I don't like it, uh, but could you explain to everyone why the FTC is going after Amazon right now? Yeah, so right now they have a lawsuit going on against Amazon um, surrounding its Prime subscription services, um, saying that they're accusing the company of engaging in practices that would make it uh, very difficult for for consumers to go and cancel their Prime membership um, and tricking them into signing up for Prime, et cetera, things like that. Um, and they just updated it recently to to go and, and reflect some some things that they thought were appropriate. Now, this is entirely separate from the fact that Amazon is also expected to get a major antitrust lawsuit filed against it by Lena Khan at some point in the near future. We don't quite know the timeline just yet, but we're anticipating pretty soon that that major monopoly antitrust lawsuit will drop from Lena Khan against Amazon. But the notion that this this case um, surrounding the Prime membership stuff is a little bit ridiculous, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, right now, they're complaining about the number of clicks it takes to to go and uh, get your, your Prime subscription service canceled, which, by the way, it only takes six clicks to go and cancel your Prime membership. It's, it is pretty clear how, how you can go and get around to canceling your Prime membership. It's not exactly hard. Um, and if you have an issue with it, you can certainly go and, and look it up. Uh, it's pretty easy. You can get you know YouTube videos even if you want. They can show you how to do it in as little as a couple of minutes probably. Um, so it's a little it's a little silly, uh, especially when you're talking about the benefits that people get from the Prime service. Um, it's actually one of my friends, uh, Patrick Hedger, called this out back when this lawsuit was originally dropped. And it was uh, quite funny because while it takes you six clicks, the, the egregious process of six, six clicks to cancel your Amazon Prime uh, membership, if you wanted to go and exercise your right to you know express your grievances against the FTC for policies that it's pursuing right now, it takes you more than six clicks to get it done, assuming the website's even functioning properly. Uh, so I think that it's a little rich for the FTC to be trying to go and complain about uh, something like this right now, given how horrible they, they are uh, and, and certainly how difficult it can be sometimes to go and submit comments to the FTC. So, again, it's just, you know, more of the same from Lena Khan. This administration and this FTC have always gone underneath the premise of big is bad and, and tech is certainly very bad. And therefore we will do anything and everything we can to go and make their lives miserable. So this lawsuit is not surprising. We'll see what happens there, but truly it, it is a little silly when you're talking about something as simple as canceling a subscription um, when it, when it is in fact so easy to go and, and navigate that process. I, I did. I, that's why I started laughing as soon as you brought this up, because six clicks. I mean, if you compare that to any government website for doing anything, I mean, has anyone ever tried to use a DMV website before? I mean, it, anything they do is is terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Or even better yet, think about the offline comparisons of subscription models that you that you go to. Right. Like if you wanted to go and subscribe to The New York Times, going and canceling your subscription there is such a headache. Uh, maybe because they realize that people aren't too pleased with them right now. Um, they, the Wall, yeah, the Wall Street Journal, you've got to like, you got to call the Wall Street Journal to cancel your subscription. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. A, yeah, I think that's a common problem. A lot of the offline analogs that so you have to go and call. Sometimes, um, you know, you have to go and pay a cancellation fee. I think for other types of services. So again, six clicks to go and cancel your membership is somehow egregious, but all this other behavior is not. Seems a little bit <laughs> odd to me. Um, 
again, I, I think that it's just silly. It's because it has Amazon slapped on it that all of a sudden the FTC's, you know, ears perk up and they're like, oh, well, what can we do today? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it's just it's an unfortunate reality because that means that taxpayers are funding this to the tune of millions of dollars. Now, Lena Khan has spent millions of taxpayer dollars pursuing all kinds of legal action against the technology sector. And by the way, for the record, she's winless in court. This woman <laughs> has done nothing of, of merit to go and even justify the kind of goose chases that she's doing right now. Um, you know, she's more interested in going and sending her staff over to the European Union to help them enforce the Digital Markets Act and the <laughs> Digital Services Act, which it's kind of wild because those those particular pieces of legislation in the European Union, if they were in the United States, would get struck down as unconstitutional just outright. They are terrible pieces of legislation. So she's wasting taxpayer dollars going and harassing the technology sector and losing in court in the process. So undermining the actual credibility of the institution that is the Federal Trade Commission. And then on top of that, she's wasting taxpayer dollars going and advancing things that actually undermine Americans' constitutional protections. Like the DSA has a lot of stuff in it that goes and targets misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, all of that, right? Which, again, it's all protected underneath the First Amendment of the United States. But she's sending staff over to the European Union to go and help with the, the, the integration of this. Now, this, this is what we're dealing with here. Wow. Now I didn't know about that part at all. See, it's uh, that I learned something new every day. So, uh, James, I wish we had more time, but we got to we got to wrap it up today. I need I need you to tell everyone where they can go to find more of your work and follow what you're doing every day. Absolutely. You guys can always go and follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at uh, JamesCZ19, or uh, you can check my, my work out at AmericansForProsperity.org. I also have the affiliation with Young Voices, so definitely check out their, their website as well to keep up with all the latest things I'm doing in this space. All right, James, thank you so much. Hope to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.